0: I mean, children—they uh, really put a, a, a unique spin and, and perspective on things, do they not? I mean, nobody saw the poinsettia thing coming. You—you um, you don't script that because they're not going to get the lines right. And—and and, you know, I'm just—I'm glad it went to the poinsettia and not something like Mr. Justin. You have something in your beard, and. But you'll notice that the center point of that nativity and what all the kids knew was was Jesus is the center point of that. That he sits right there at the center, and you see this nativity before me that that nativity scenes have have immortalized and solidified in our minds that Jesus is the center of all of this stuff. But one of the things that is is firmly cemented in our minds is the image of, of Jesus is what? Is is a baby. Right? And so if you have nativity scenes in your house, if you have uh, the little people and like we had up on the stage, none of them have Jesus as a man, because that would be kind of strange laying in the manger. But they always have Jesus, and they've, they've captured this Kodak moment for all of eternity, Jesus is this baby. But man, if that's all he is for you. If that's all he ever becomes for you, then the peace that the angels purport that he can bring can never be affected. And so today we're going to look at how God brings peace. How God is able to go through the process of of bringing peace in our lives and of causing peace in this world. But let's pick up this this word that Tim read earlier and Justin recounted to the children. You'll remember that that Mary and Joseph, they're returning to Bethlehem not because they lived there, but because the census demanded they return back there. And so you remember the story, they've traveled some great distance and they arrive back in the town and, and they can't find anywhere to bed down for the night. And so they end up bedding down in the most humble of places. And they placed one who would be king in a lowly manger. Now, God is up to something radical at this point. He is doing things that really violate every expectation of what people had come to expect in the way that the Messiah King would come. And who were some of the first to find out about it? Do angels appear to the high and mighty? Do they go into Jerusalem or Nazareth or, or upper town Bethlehem and, and knock on the door of the rich and famous and say, hey, look, y'all, you know, get dressed, end your, your snazzy party, and come on down because I know it's on the south side of town. It's not great, it's in a manger. I, I, look, you're, you're, you're suspicious at this point. No, none of those things happened. Angels appeared to shepherds. Now, there are some of you that have romanticized the position of shepherd. And, and somehow in your mind, you flash back to the first century, and you think, man, that would have been a great job, if I'm out there in nature. I am my own man. People look up to me because sheep were highly prized in the first century. That, that's just not true. man. If, if I'm ruining that fairy tale for you, and this, you know, somehow you're unable to invent a time machine and go back to the first century, and you set yourself up as a shepherd, everybody's going to look down on you. Think of another career path. I mean, you did invent a time machine in this scenario. And so this angel appears to to lowly people. He appears to these men that are out in this field, and they're carrying over the watch of, of sheep. And think of the shock. Think of the terror that they would have experienced. I mean, they're not used to being addressed by kings or governors or princes or the high and mighty, and here before them stood one shining as bright as the sun and declaring to them news that would forever change the world. They said that there would be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And so, this isn't enough that, that, that an angel is before them and testifying to this and. You know, if it's just one or two angels, it would have been, no, what did you guys do last night? You, you saw a bright light, and the bright light spoke to you. But now, suddenly before them, a whole host, many hundreds of angels gathered around them. Many hundreds of angels declaring and singing one thing. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Peace among those He is pleased. Now when God brings peace, He doesn't do it through uh, uh, getting heads of state together. When God brings peace, it's not this Neville Chamberlain attempt at bringing peace that when he got done meeting with Hitler and came back and spoke in front of the British nation and said, I bring to you peace for our time. Peace that we all know failed. You see, when God brings peace, he does so through a tremendous display of power. Let's look at Psalm 29 together as we see the way that God brings peace. Now, Psalm 29, when you turn there, you'll you'll notice pretty quickly that what David does here is something a little bit different. You see, we're used to reading Psalms where he writes, it says, let all in the assembly take note, or let all of the people observe, and so we, we understand that he's writing to people, us, right? That he's writing a message that is, that is directed first to humanity, but he does something a little different here. He does something maybe a little bit shocking here. See, when David starts off this psalm, he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Look at who David's addressing. David addresses those who testify to the birth of Christ, and he looks up towards the heavens, he shouts up to the angels, and he says, Ascribe to the Lord. Let, let you angels do something, let you ascribe to the Lord. We find out the object of that in verse 2. He says, Ascribe to the to the Lord, or in the second half of verse 1, he says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. David, speaking to the angelic host, speaking to the angels of heaven, says this to them, ascribe to the Lord glory and ascribe to the Lord strength. He says, Consider this, that God is glory and that God has strength. He says of the angels not to, not to give these things to God because God is by very definition glorious. God is by very definition strength. But he says consider this, return back to God with this understanding that he is glorious and that he is full of strength. Now it's going to become evident why David chose to direct this to the angelic host in a moment. Going into verse 2, he, he particularizes it. He's already told them to ascribe glory and strength, but he says it's a particular kind of glory. He says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory, due his name. He says, Look, take this weightiness, take this heaviness in this fame that is glory. That, that isn't glory of any man, no matter how rich, no matter how famous he is. All those things pale in comparison with the glory of God. Ascribe to the Lord a particular kind of glory. The glory due his name on account of who he is. That he is holy unlike any other God. That all other gods pale in comparison to him. That all of humanity and all its wonder and all its fascination and then it's all its magnificence pales in comparison with how great and how glorious this God is. And he says, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. And then he goes to them and he says, as you engage in this, you worship him in the splendor of his holiness. David paints this beautiful word picture. He says to the angelicos, he says, as you come before God, this is what you wear. This is what you adorn yourself with. You take on the white robes of his holiness. You take on and you cover yourself with the holiness of God. And it is in that clothing you return back to him worship. You return back to him joy. You return back to him thanksgiving. They worship him in the glory that is due His name. They ascribe back to Him strength and glory, and they do so wrapped in the adornment of His holiness. What a picture. The heavenly hosts surrounding the throne of God crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. Man, what a picture. David wants to crystallize this picture in your mind and in my mind. And he gives us reasons why it has to be this way, and he does so through seven descriptions of the voice of God. In verses 3-9, through David goes through and he describes the voice of the Lord. He's talking about the way God speaks and His power and His action. He starts off and, and David says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. You'll know that the Mediterranean borders Israel and so what David pictures is, is God very much hearkening back to this creation narrative where the God's spirit is over the waters and now he sees God hovering over the waters. And if you've ever watched a thunderstorm come into being, if you've ever watched it, it come up and, and you hear that low rumble and you begin to see the waters rise and they're teeming together. David pictures God in his voice moving over the waters. He sees God in his glory thundering, this cacophonous bellow that comes out in this booming, so much grander. I mean, the, the most booming voice I can think of is always, I go back to James Earl Jones, but but just think of James Earl Jones sounding more like Pee Wee Herman, okay? And, and now we get close to the comparison of James Earl Jones and God, and so it's... You know, from a high tinny voice and with a tricycle into James Earl. Jones, and you see the disparity between those. and now think James Earl. Jones to God, and just I worked on this for a while, and that's the best thing I came up with. <laughs> God's voice booms over the waters. He is the Lord over many waters. We read in the second half of verse two, and he says, "He is the God of glory." Man, this glory the angels are meant to rend back towards God. God is by his very definition glory. He is the God of glory. All glory, every praise and honor is due his name because that is who he is. He's the Lord over many waters. Verse 4 tells us that the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. See, when we look at this nativity scene and we see this small, baby. And if any of you have ever spent much time around a newborn, they're not affecting very much in the room, right? They're not, they're not the person you call if you need a refrigerator moved. They're not the person you call if you need some heavy lifting done. But we read here that the voice of the Lord is powerful. God's voice causes nations to rise and fall. God's voice was spoken and all of creation came into being and his voice is full of majesty. David is leaning towards this declaration that because of who he is, he is worthy to be praised. And something that is majestic is something you behold and it just causes you to fall into this deep sense of awe. This deep sense of wonder and appreciation and just speechlessness. His voice is powerful and full of majesty. Now, he uses a couple of metaphors that are probably lost on most of us this morning. And he says in verse 5, he says, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Now, One of the things that that was very prominent in Lebanon were these mighty cedar trees that would grow up. And they were a symbol of pride. They were a symbol of strength. And so over and over again we read about the pride of Lebanon. We read about these cedars. We know that, that David's palace was constructed out of cedars because of their strength. And here we read that when God's voice comes upon the cedars... And then he particularizes it. He says the cedars of Lebanon, when it comes upon these mighty trees that stood for pride, it destroys them. It breaks them. It tears them down. When his voice comes upon these cedars, they don't stand. They become nothing more than toothpicks in the wave and power of his voice as it comes upon them. Man, what a tremendous display of power that just in the movement of his voice, he's able to affect such a tremendous display of might. And he says in verse 6 that he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a wild young ox. Now, these aren't images that we encounter every day, but what he is talking about are, are mountains that tower over 10,000 feet. And so imagine imagine these two mountains towering into the sky. But as the voice of the Lord comes upon them, he shakes them to their roots. He causes them to jump. He causes them to toss in the air. When this tremendous display of power comes upon them, he makes them to skip like a calf. He causes them to skip like a young ox. He causes them to jump and twist and turn in the air. We read that the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. That when God's voice is upon the clouds, he causes lightning. That when he speaks, lightning falls from the sky. That God, as he moves in the wind, causes such a tremendous display of power. We read that the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness that is, his voice moves from the water inland to the mountains and now moves out over the wilderness, that it causes all of these to shake and tremble before him. But look what he does in verse 9. This, this voice that is booming out. This voice that is bringing forth fire from heaven. This voice which causes the mountains to jump and twist and shake. This voice moves with such delicacy. It moves with such precision that it causes the deer to give birth. when the voice of the Lord comes upon our lives. It can move the immovable. But it comes into our life with such precision and skill that even in this tremendous display of power which uproots mountains, which destroys forests, which strips trees bare, it causes the gentle deer to give birth. There's precision in the power. We read that even in the midst of that precision, that it strips the forest bare. What a tremendous display of power our God has. Now, David has, has written these words to the angelic host. And the argument that he's making to them is that you need to ascribe glory and strength to God. You need to worship him, wrapped in his splendor, because of who he is. Because of his powerful voice and his movement, because he is able to accomplish and do all of these things, because of the way that God moves and the power that by virtue of who he is, is his, you need to ascribe glory and strength. But David recognized that he would also have a human audience reading this, that that you and I would hear these words today, that Christians would read these words, and that as we reflect on the movement of the angels, as we reflect on their, their posture before God, them bowing down before God, as we reflect on their movement before Him, that there is only one right response. That when we reflect on the power and the movement of God, only one thing is right for us to do. That we join with all of those in the last part of verse 9 and it says, in his temple all cry glory. That when we recognize God moving in this tremendous display of power, there's nothing left for us to do but sit back and marvel and we cry out glory. as we see God moving and see His tremendous display of power, we see the angelic hosts and all that they are turning back and ascribing to God strength, ascribing to God glory, when we see all the things that His voice is able to accomplish, we join with them. But all of humanity, when we rightly come to understand who God is, we cry glory. See, the angels worshiping God and all of humanity cries out glory when they rightly recognize who He is. And so David comes and he offers us in 10 and 11 two more statements of, of who God is and then he is so bold as to make a request of God. David moves and he says, look, see God is tremendously powerful. That God is Is tremendous in His display of power. And this God who who does this, this, this one Yahweh God, He sits enthroned over the flood. David calls us to remember that time when God looked down and He saw all of humanity moving against Him. He calls us to remember that time when he came down and he scanned all of humanity and he turned to the man Noah and he reckoned him righteous. And that God moved to, to spare and save the future of humanity by, by calling them into the ark together. By calling them into safety and security. David tells us, he says, look, the same God who brought the flood, who promised that He would never again bring the flood, He sits enthroned over that flood. We picture God sitting over the expanse of heaven and holding back the floodwaters of judgment. Holding back that judgment. And for how long? David tells us that God sits enthroned forever. That He sits enthroned before the very creation of Of all that we see, all that we take in, all of the air we breathe, He sits enthroned forevermore. As far as eternity goes into the past and as far as eternity goes into the future, God sits enthroned forever. There is an unshakableness, there is an untemporariness, there is a lasting endurance to the praise and adoration that we should render to God because of the duration of His kingdom. David says, may the Lord God give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. David, as he reflects on all of these things, looks at humanity and says, look, it is difficult to make it. It is difficult to to live in the midst of this. It is difficult to suffer. It is difficult to endure all that's around us. And so David cries out, he says, God, give us strength. David recognizes that looking at the power displayed, the way that God is able to move, that truly God is the one who is able to give strength, that God is the source of strength, that God's strength does not tire, does not get weak, but it lasts forevermore. So David turns and he says, God, give us strength. And David asks. And David makes the request. He said, Lord, bless your people with peace. See, David recognizes, man, there's no way we can affect peace on our own that that no getting heads of state together, that no amount of us doing good to our fellow man, no amount of that will affect peace that lasts. It's all temporary. It's all fleeting. But David says of God, the God whose voice breaks the cedars. David says to God, the God whose voice causes mountains to leap. David says of that God who sits as king forever, he says, Lord, bring us peace. And God does it in the most unlikely voice. You see, God, when he brings peace, he does so through Jesus but this baby we behold in nativity scenes this baby we behold in nativity scenes the author of Hebrews writes about him and in chapter 1 and verse 3 he says this of Jesus he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That this word which God is speaking to move in power is Jesus as God spoke to create. Jesus as the word of God upholds the universe, that he upholds the laws of gravity, that he upholds oxygen, that he upholds our breath, that he upholds everything, that he keeps them all in perfect calm. And he does this not through some, some weak display of power, but he does this through the tremendous display of power that can only come from God because He is God see the text goes on to say this of Jesus it says He upholds the universe by the word of His power but Jesus that after making the purification for sin sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high see Jesus came into the world in the most unlikely of ways into the most unlikely of towns. It's, it's not the place that, that you would expect to see somebody famous show up. It's not the, the place that you would expect to see the world changed in. was <laughs> Born to people that, that outside of the movement of God and, and Jesus showing up, the history would not have remembered. When Jesus showed up. He came in the most unassuming way. But in his death, after Jesus had made atonement for for your sin and for my sin, he moved in power to destroy death forever. So this Christmas, as as you're caught up in, In in this movement of purchasing gifts and receiving gifts, we recognize that there's one thing we cannot provide for ourselves. We cannot bring peace into our lives. We cannot bring peace into our families. We cannot bring peace into our place of work. We cannot bring peace into our world. But God brings peace forever. The angel declares that he brings peace among whom he is pleased. Jesus, as the Word of God, moves in a powerful display to bring peace forever. And the offer is extended to all of us. How do you respond to the offer of peace that God extends to you through the person of his Son? Let me pray for us.